0: I've often said in coming to Richmond Hill that I appreciate the lectionary readings, but I would have to say that tonight I'm not so sure. Jesus' strict teaching on divorce and remarriage is tough. It was tough then, and it's tough now. Now, I have to confess that in two weeks uh, from last night, my wife and I will celebrate 30 years of marriage together. Now, before before you congratulate us, I have to tell you that several times this year, Kristen has said to me, I'm not sure we're going to make it. (laughs) And I know that she says that with affection, right, Kristen? But it's also a reality. In two weeks, yes, we'll celebrate. I hope we make it. But it's a reality that she and I both know that marriage is really hard. It is tough. And I often think that it is no wonder that 50% of them don't make it. It takes a lot of perseverance and plenty of forgiveness. My own parents aren't together and both my sisters have been through divorces. And I would venture to say that none of us are immune to its impact which makes preaching on this text hard. Just hearing it read can open old wounds and stir up feelings of inadequacy or failure and guilt. But a closer look reveals that the last thing Jesus wants to do is make us feel guilty here. In fact, he redirects the conversation from focusing on something negative about divorce to revealing something positive about marriage. Also, the pairing of this text with the blessing of children offers something affirming to all of us, married, divorced, single or otherwise. Right out of the gate, we're told that the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. They wanted to know his thoughts on the subject of divorce, but not without having an ulterior motive in mind. The issue of divorce was not a debatable question among the Jews of Jesus' day. But the allowable grounds was. The Pharisees hoped that Jesus would take sides with either the stringent position of the school of Shammai or the more permissive reading of the school of Hillel. For Jesus to take one side or the other would certainly create a controversy. But he didn't fall into the trap. Instead, what he did was something that he often practiced when asked a question. He would ask one in return. In the end, he offers a third way, an alternative to what they expected, one that challenged Moses' authority, one that affirmed the place of women in the marriage relationship, and one that denied that the Torah was written necessarily to reflect God's will. Talk about controversy, right? Jesus didn't back away from it. Instead, he entered into it because he had a point that he wanted to make. He didn't want it to be lost on his hearers. The stakes were higher for him than whether or not divorce was okay or not. While affirming marriage, he also assumes that some marriages won't last. Without belaboring the point, he turns the question, is divorce lawful, on its head by refusing to focus on the legality of divorce, but instead on the intent of marriage that it be a lifelong joining of two persons in a profound union, what the scriptures call and what Jesus calls one flesh, a relationship for which even father and mother are left behind to attend to out of God's will. It's interesting to note that this text serves as a counterpoint to other comments that Jesus has made about family and about the commitments of family, He's already said that my mother and my brothers may not be my blood relatives. They're any who trust in God. And he makes the point also by saying that coming trials will split families apart. Brother against brother, father against child, mother against son. It's interesting to hear this text in light of those where he says what God joins together. Let no one separate. Anyways, in my former life as a congregational pastor, I married lots of people. In counseling them, I would often say that it's important that you keep in mind covenant relationship. Because covenants are important to people of faith. And God has a history of making covenants, of making promises with us. The rainbow given at the end of the flood story is a sign of God's promise not to do that again. The cup on our communion table is a reminder of the covenant sealed in Christ's blood for the forgiveness of our sins. These covenants are important. God makes promises to us that God upholds, and God wants us to make promises to each other that we can uphold. And then I would talk to them about the reality that often we can't honor those covenants the way we intend. And so it's important for God to be a part of our relationships and part of the important commitments that we make with one another. And then I would encourage them to continue to hold the church as an important place in their marriage because the church is a community of faith. It's a community of commitment. It's a community that can support them and encourage them and hold them up and help them to honor the commitments they're making to one another. Essentially, I was saying, God needs to be a part of that relationship too, because there are things in relationship that are difficult for us human beings that only God can honor. I'm reminded of a song by Lyle Lovett, a country singer, who uh, sung about, in in kind of a a fun way, he sung about the difficulty of honoring commitments and being forgiving and accepting and, and always staying true to his partner. And the refrain goes, God will, but I won't. God does, but I don't. That's the difference between me and God. And he's trying to remind us, I think, through that song, that we need to trust in God. And we need to remember that God should be a part of our commitments and a part of our relationship In the case of the song, it might have been about not wanting to honor the commitment, looking for an excuse or a way out. God might do it, but I'm not God. But we as people of faith don't need excuses. We know that we need God and that we need to rely on God, especially in the relationships that matter most to us. Our relationships with one another mirror, to some extent, our relationship with God, and vice versa. The union that marriage invites us into is not unlike the union that God desires to have with each one of us. The mystics of the church get this better than than most people. We're too ashamed of our sexuality to think more intimately about our connection in our relationship with God. But the Song of Songs and people like St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila speak of God in the most intimate way, as a partner, a lover, and a confidant. The relationship that God wants with us is a total relationship. Jesus speaks to it as a one not unlike the making of two into one, here that we hear about in marriage, where two shall become one. In John's gospel, Jesus makes it clear that he wants to be one with God. He wants us to be one with God, just as he is. Now, there's a level of intimacy implied there that we rarely consider for ourselves. But it isn't foreign to the church, the church that is thought of as the bride of Christ, or those who make their vocations in the church, nuns and priests who see themselves as married to Christ. The sisters of the visitation who lived here for 120 years would have understand that, would have understood that, seeing themselves as married to Christ in their commitment to cloister and to pray. Now I realize I just made a big jump from talking about divorce to talking about our union and intimacy with God. But I think that's part of Jesus' point in this text for us today. He wanted his hearers to get out of a small box, the disciples in particular. He knew that God's love was and is all-consuming and transformational. And he wanted his disciples to see that love is greater than legal obligation or their morality. But as usual, they didn't quite get it. So that when they came in from outside, Jesus trying to answer the question of the Pharisees, the first thing they do is say, well, what about divorce? They push him on the subject. It must have been frustrating for him, which might be part of the reason why when we get to the part in the text about blessing children, which I never noticed before that those things were right next to each other, Jesus becomes indignant very quickly. He's probably already a little bit upset with them for their behavior. Indignant is a strong word to associate with Jesus. And there are only a few times in the gospels where he shows his dismay so emphatically. When he overturned the tables before the money changers, he was indignant. To the dinner crowd who tried to shoo away the woman who was anointing him for burial, he became indignant. And in several other cases, he showed, when people showed indifference about human need around them, he became upset. Which raises the question for me, what would Jesus become indignant about today? maybe it would still have something to do with the way we treat our children. We know that over 40% of the children here in the city of Richmond live in poverty, which means that almost one in two is hungry, maybe without a home, or without other basic necessities of life, right here in our neighborhood. I learned this past weekend that Virginia has the highest rate of children in the U.S. who are aging out of the foster care eligibility without ever being placed. There's just not enough homes. or people willing to open their homes for some of these children? And there are other issues as well. I met a woman on retreat this past weekend who mentioned her work uh, with the homeless in the Tidewater area the stretchers from Smithfield down into North Carolina, and she said in the last year that their caseload has increased by a nightmarish amount. She said, I can't keep up, and my colleagues and I are having a very hard time meeting the needs around us. I think about what played out on our national stage the last couple of weeks around the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Another example, a reminder of the extent to which men are involved in sexual misconduct and the abuse of power. I think these things would make Jesus indignant. And they should make us indignant as well. In our text, Jesus stands up for women. He acknowledges that they have rights in marriage as well as in divorce. The right to divorce and the right to remarry. That position went against Jewish law and conventional thought. And then he stands up for children. Roman society had little use for them. Since they were not productive members of society, they were unable to work, contribute, provide. They were often overlooked and abused, ignored, and even sold. They were expected to be seen and not heard. And female children were valued even less. Jesus, however, not only says that they are valued in God's eyes, but that they are an example of what it means to be a citizen in God's realm. The disciples had bought into a cultural narrative that said that children have no status and are a nuisance. In the text for today, the disciples were becoming a nuisance to Jesus and he'd had enough. And so taking the children in his arms, he made it clear that the rule of God belongs to persons like these, those who are powerless, vulnerable, and weak. In overlooking the children, the disciples had missed the whole point of Jesus' ministry. As I just said, I'd never noticed how these two texts are together. If it hadn't been for the lectionary, I would have never seen that. That his talk about divorce and then his picking up and blessing children go hand in hand. Jesus' teaching on divorce and his blessing of children occur right one after another, and I think it must be on purpose. Mark is trying to tell us something. Just when we thought, or when we might have thought again, that our behavior in and out of marriage may position us better or worse. In God's eyes, Jesus picks up a child and offers grace. Look who's included. The smallest, the overlooked, the undervalued, the one most vulnerable, the one who has no means to measure up or stand out. God embraces her or him. Not only that, but Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like one of these is going to miss it. Children are not just a good example of those who will, who we will find in heaven but they model for us how to get there how to enter into it by nature children are gracious and they're openly receptive and they're full of joy and enthusiasm they aren't concerned with whether they deserve something or not they simply receive the gift they're gracious recipients Imagine how God must feel when we receive divine love without condition or reservation or without a doubt. Children show us how. They make no excuses and they have nothing to prove. They are simply eager to be taken up into Jesus' arms and blessed. And I think the point of this text is that we can be too. It doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful our marriages have been, whether we've managed to attain the type of union God intends or not. The receiving of the kingdom of God as a little child still holds true. It's not something we earn, nor something any failure can take away. The relationship God desires for us with each other and with God alike is predicated on grace alone and sustained by the same. May it be so. Amen.